Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current study, Prove It. In this five-part series, we'll see how God's Word instructs and equips us to live with the various challenges to our faith. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Well, hello and welcome to our Valley Brook service. If we haven't met, my name is Harrison and I serve on the elder board here at Valley Brook and co-lead the young adult ministry with my wife, Casey. Uh, I'm so excited that you're joining us today for our outdoor service as we get to enjoy just a little piece of our beautiful campus together today. Pastor Clark is away this weekend, so I have the privilege of continuing our series in 1 John today. So let's jump in. Well, my first job out of high school, I was working as a cashier at a school supply store down in Atlanta, Georgia. I made minimum wage, but it was a pretty good gig for an 18-year-old who was saving up money for college. Uh, you know, the teachers and the parents were nice that came in and, and the school supplies were fun to sell. Um, so it was great until August, at least, when mobs of teachers and parents descended upon the store to stock up on their supplies for the upcoming school year. Uh, I can tell you that back-to-school shopping is a lot less fun when you're on the other side of the cash register. But anyway, when I first started, my manager had to teach me how to ring up merchandise and how to accept various forms of payments, like credit cards and debit cards and checks. But when it came to cash, there was a specific step that I had to remember that was important. Uh, Specifically for any bill that was worth $20 or more, I had to take this special highlighter looking pen uh, and write a line on top of the bill. Uh, Now if the line stayed invisible, I knew that the money was legit. Now if it turned black, then I knew it was a fake and that it wasn't actually worth anything. Fortunately, no one ever tried to give me fake money that summer, uh, but I'd use that pen several times every day while I was there. And the reason that the pen leaves a mark on the fake money, but not on the real money, is that it contains an iodine solution that reacts to the starch in wood-based paper. You see, real money isn't actually paper. It's a mixture between cloth and linen. So it doesn't react to that iodine solution in the pen. And that's just one way to spot a fake bill. There are all kinds of high-tech security features that are baked in to the cash we use every day to make it impossible to recreate. For example, if you hold money up to the light, you'll see a distinct watermark visible. Uh, And there is also usually a security strip on the face of the bill that glows pink under a UV light. Uh, There's some printing on the ink on the page that actually the ink changes color depending on which angle you look at the bill. And if you look very closely, there are some teeny tiny words printed all over the face of every bill that are almost invisible to the naked eye. And they use a technique called microprinting to put those words on the money. Why does our money require all these ultra fine details? While our entire monetary system relies on us being able to trust that the cash we use to pay for a good or service is actually worth the value printed on the front. Anyone could put Benjamin Franklin's face and the number 100 on a rectangular piece of paper and call it a $100 bill, but we know it isn't worth $100. 
It's the special characteristics of the real $100 bill that prove that it is worth the value printed in the corner. Well, as important as it is for us to feel confident in our monetary system and that our money is real, it's even more important for those of us who call ourselves Christians to know that our faith is real. You see, there are a lot of versions of Christianity out there that may seem legitimate on the surface, but are actually cleverly disguised counterfeits. And a counterfeit faith is dangerous because it can fool us into thinking that we are following the will of God and receiving the benefit of eternal life when in actuality we're holding on to something that is worthless. So how can we detect a true faith in Jesus from the fake? How can we prove that our faith is real? Well, we're in the middle of a series called Prove It, where we're addressing those very questions by looking at the book of 1 John. 1 John is actually a letter written by the Apostle John to the early church. And just like today, there are a lot of counterfeit versions of Christianity that were circulating among the church in the first century. False teachers were essentially slapping a picture of Jesus on their culture or their agenda and luring people to believe that it was a faith of value. But John saw this happening, and so he wrote this letter to instruct believers on how to identify the unique characteristics that mark a true faith in Jesus. So far in this series, we've unpacked a few of those characteristics. Uh, for example, a true faith shows that you walk in the light, or you walk in righteousness, or you walk in truth. And today, as we dive into the text, we're going to see another key characteristic that defines a real faith in God. John tells us what this characteristic is in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4 of 1 John, where he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. But whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. He's saying love is the hallmark of someone who knows God. And John gives us the reason why. It's because God is love. Just like righteousness and truth, love is an inseparable part of God's nature. We prove we know love himself when we love like he loves. But what is love? Now that word is actually surprisingly difficult to pin down, especially for those who speak English. You know, I can say that I love peanut butter chocolate ice cream, and I can also say that I love my wife. Uh, but obviously I'm talking about two different types of loves here. Otherwise, I'd be having some pretty serious marital issues right now. Uh, but this illustrates the challenge we face when we talk about the importance of love. Not all loves are equal. So what kind of love is John talking about? Well, we can actually turn to the ancient Greeks to help us get a clearer understanding of what love is. Whereas we have one word for love, the Greeks have somewhere between four and eight, depending on who you ask. So just for fun, let's go through a few of them. Um, the first is a Greek word called storge. Uh, and this love is actually usually referred to as affection in our English language. And it's typically used to describe the common empathy felt between family members. So like a parent loving their child or vice versa, or a brother and sister loving each other. Think Marlon and Nemo from Finding Nemo or Anna and Elsa from Frozen. You know, we love people 
and sometimes our pets too with storge because they are familiar to us. And along those lines, storge is also used when referencing the love of one's country or even the love of a sports team, if that's your thing. Another Greek word for love is philia, and this is the love of true friendship. We're not talking about Facebook friends or merely surface-level acquaintances here. We're talking about true, deep friendships. Uh, it's usually shared between two or more people who care about the same cause, activity, or topic. Think uh, Scooby-Doo and Shaggy, or Timon and Pumbaa from The Lion King, or the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. You know, another example where we see philia in our modern day is actually in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, that stands for the city of brotherly love. A third Greek word for love is eros, and this is romantic love. This is where we get the word erotic from. When we say somebody is in love, or something is a love story or a love song, this is usually the type of love that we're referring to. Now, physical intimacy is a part of this love, but is much more than physical attraction. It's an admiration for the person themselves. Now, there are endless loves of romantic, and there are endless examples of romantic love in our pop culture today. Uh, and it's obvious that we're very in love with the love of Eros. And it's rare to watch a movie or read a book without some instance of it appearing. Just a couple more, real quick. Uh, Philodia is self love, or as one writer describes it, a regard for one's own happiness or advantage. I think this type of love has grown in popularity in our modern individualistic society. And lastly, xenia. So this is the Greek concept of hospitality. The love of xenia exhibits similar behaviors as the love of storge, but is based on cultural norms about how you treat someone who is a guest in your home. And I think we can all relate to that type of love as well. Now, if you'd like to have some fun with these, uh, the next time that you watch a movie or read a book, I encourage you to play a game that I like to call Greek Love Bingo, where you try and point out all the different types of love that you see in the story that you watch. You might be surprised at how many you find in our common stories. And personally, I find these Greek words to be both fascinating and helpful when trying to understand what it means to love. But if you look back at this list, you might notice something important that they have in common. We can experience all of these loves naturally without really knowing God first. You see, storge, philia, eros, philodia, and xenia are really human loves. And you see, because God is love and we are made in his image, we have a natural capacity to love in ways that look similar to God's love. It's kind of like the fact that because God is a creator, we have creativity. And our natural loves prompt us to give of ourselves to meet the needs of the people we love. A mother will exhibit her affection for her child by giving her time and energy to take care of it. A good friend will be by your side in times of hardship. Someone who is filled with romantic love will give up their status, their career, or even their dream to be with one, the one they love. And perhaps most noble of all, a soldier will give their life on the battlefield for the country that they love. These acts of love are inspiring and beautiful because we are created to both love and be loved. We are naturally drawn to admire love in its many forms. But just as these natural loves can generate goodness 
in our relationships in our world. They're not infallible. Just like we can use our creativity to make things that are harmful and sinful, our loves can also be corrupted. Affection for one's family can be poisoned with jealousy and can lead to a smothering relationship or enable someone to continue in sin. The love of friendship can lead to prideful cliques that show contempt for those who are outsiders. The love of self can lead to laziness and neglect of other people. And the passions of romantic love have led people to lie, steal, and even murder. And history has shown that the love for one's country can even lead to feelings of superiority that are so strong that people have committed acts of genocide in the name of their country. How can our natural loves corrupt so easily? Well, I think C.S. Lewis effectively describes what is happening here in his book, The Four Loves. In it, he writes, Every human love at its height has a tendency to claim for itself a divine authority. Its voice tends to sound as if it were the will of God itself. It tells us not to count the cost. It demands of us a total commitment. It attempts to override all other claims and insinuates that any action which is sincerely done for love's sake is therefore lawful. Our human loves can give us feelings of such strong passion that they sound like truth himself. This is probably why the prophet Jeremiah wrote that the heart is deceitful among, above all things and is beyond cure. Our natural loves can fool us into thinking that any sin is okay if it's done in the name of love. But a natural love that seems pure can lead us to an even bigger problem. If we're not careful, they can completely replace God as number one in our lives. C.S. Lewis continues, by saying, the natural loves make this kind of blasphemous claim, not when they are at their worst, but when they are at their best, most natural condition. A faithful and genuinely self-sacrificing passion will speak to us with what seems to be the voice of God, and our loves do not make their claim to divinity until the claim becomes plausible. And it does not become plausible until there is in them a real resemblance to God, to love himself. We may make our human loves the unconditional allegiance we owe to only to God. Then they become our gods. Then they become demons. Then they can destroy us and also destroy themselves. For natural loves that are allowed to become gods do not remain loves. They are still called so, but can in fact become complicated forms of hatred. So I think what C.S. Lewis is saying here is that when we look to any of our natural loves as the ultimate love, we are setting ourselves up for trouble. If we aren't careful, the truth that God is love can slyly come to mean the exact opposite, that love is our God. Now I take us on this linguistic and philosophical detour because it's important for us who claim to be Christians to understand the kind of love that truly is from God in order for us to prove that our faith is real. So again, we come back to the question, what is godly love? Well, thankfully, we can return to the next few verses of John's letter for the answer. In verse 9, we read this. He says, This is how God showed his love among us. 
he sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In this verse, John is introducing us to a Greek word for love that we have not yet discussed. The word is agape. And there aren't many uses of this Greek word outside of the New Testament, which I think is important because John is presenting a love here that is unique and separate from our other natural loves. He says agape love is defined by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus for your sins and my sins. And this is not the first time that John brings up this word for love. In John's gospel, we read these very familiar words where he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And I love how the Apostle Paul re-emphasizes this exact concept in his letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, he says, You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. What Paul's saying here is, you and I weren't part of God's family. We weren't his friends. We weren't citizens of his kingdom or even on neutral terms with God. Our sin made us enemies with God. And our sin and selfishness put us in direct opposition to God's holiness and his sovereignty. God didn't just not owe us anything good. The justice of his nature meant that there needed to be punishment for our rebellion. But what did God do? Through Jesus, he came in the flesh to be one of us, fully God and fully man, to live the life, the perfect life, that we couldn't. And then he was arrested and ridiculed and tortured and murdered in probably one of the most gruesome and painful ways humanity had ever invented. And then, most painfully of all, Jesus took upon himself the shame and judgment of God for every single sin that every person had ever committed or would commit. He loved us so much that he did what we couldn't so that we could be reconciled with him. And here's the even more astonishing thing. Jesus died for everyone knowing that some still wouldn't believe and accept his gift of love and eternal life. This is agape love. This is the kind of love that stands out amongst all the other loves. It loves the unlovable, the undeserving, the ugly. It gives all and asks for nothing in return. It's the love that takes the greatest chance and is hit with the most loss. And this is the kind of love that proves someone is a true follower of Jesus. Going back to 1 John, in verse 11, we read, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, 
God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. He's saying that we show that love himself lives in us when we love like he loved. Now we're all familiar with the golden rule, which says to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, But Jesus actually upped the ante for those of us who would claim to follow him. Uh, At the Last Supper, when he was gathering his disciples, he told them this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Some people call this the platinum rule, because the standard of love that Jesus set with this command is much more than the golden rule. The bar for Jesus' followers is no longer loving in the way that we love ourselves, but how he loved us. And Jesus had said this right after he bent down and washed the disciples' feet, and right before he would go to the cross to be crucified for them and for us. John was there for all of it, and this is why he writes this in his letter. He says, Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Now the brother and sisters that John is referring to here is the same one another that Jesus has called us to show agape towards our fellow believers. So what does it look like to love our brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, going back to the Apostle Paul, he gives us a detailed view of what agape looks like in practice in his letter to the Corinthians. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, we read, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, this passage is commonly read at weddings, but the type of love Paul is talking about here is not romantic love. He's using the word agape here. And he's saying this is what true agape love looks like between the children of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus exemplified all of these things in his life on earth. And we're called to follow in his steps and walk in the same love he did. This is what proves our faith is real. Now, I don't know about you, but my initial reaction to reading that passage is to jump in headfirst and trying to love that way. It's like, I got to psych myself up. Okay, I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be patient. I'm not going to envy. But it doesn't take very long for my willpower to fail and my actions to look more and more like selfish love instead of selfless love. See, agape love is unlike the natural loves. In fact, there's a reason why they're referred to as natural loves, and agape is not. See, agape isn't generated by a biological impulse or an emotional feeling. And the ability to love your enemy or those who are unlovable goes beyond any cultural pressure to change our behavior and love somebody. The truth is, agape love is a supernatural love that we cannot fully do on our own. Agape is a gift from God for those of us who accept his love through Jesus. God is the one and only source of our ability to love 
with agape love. John emphasizes this multiple times in his letter. In verse 7, he said, Let us love one another, for love comes from God. In verse 11, he said, Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Again, he said, If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. We love because he first loved us. You know, this reminds me of uh, something I experienced recently. You know, there are no street lamps on the street that I live on, and so it gets quite dark at night, and it's hard to see the driveway and the walkway up to the porch of my house. And so I went to Walmart and I bought some of those uh, cheap solar lights that you can stick in the ground to light the path and light the driveway so I could see where it pull in at night. Uh, but I quickly noticed that on most evenings, the lights on the left side of the driveway would turn off way earlier than the lights on the right side. And I realized that there's a lot more trees on the left side of my driveway that shade those lights. And so they don't get enough of a charge from the sun in order to last and shine long enough in the darkness. And I was just thinking about it, our ability to love with agape love is like these lights. Our world is filled with so many distractions that get in the way of our connection with God. We let our busyness, our jobs, our school, our entertainment obsessions, our social media, or our politics, our worries, or our fears, or even our natural loves become the main focus in our lives. And they are like trees that shadow us from seeing the love that God has for us and wants to shine through us. So we need to orient our lives toward the source of love, the bright Son of God, Jesus, so that we can be filled with his love. Only then can we shine his love in the darkness. Only then can we show the path home. So the action I think we should all come away with today is not just to go and do agape love. If we try to love like that on our own, we will fail. My challenge for you and for myself is to take a look at our day-to-day lives and find ways to increase our exposure to God, to love himself, and prioritize him as our focus over all the other things that demand our time and attention. There are several ways that we can practically be connected to God's love. The first is we can be in communion and give thanksgiving to God. God is a personal God, and he wants to hear from us in prayer. And so I encourage all of us to spend some time praying to God and remember what Jesus did for us, the ultimate act of love, by giving his life for your sins and my sins. Another thing we could do is put God's words in our hearts and live them out. The Bible is the greatest love story ever told. And the more that we read and study and memorize God's words, the more we will know his voice of love and how he wants us to reflect his love. Jesus taught, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And we can only know Jesus' commands by reading his words, what he taught, and how he lived. Another way we can be connected to God's love is by feeling his love through his people. God created the church to be his light in this dark world. And he uses our fellow believers to show us his love. 
So in addition to our Sunday gatherings here at Valley Brook, we have these groups called life groups, which are small circles of people who are all working on orienting themselves towards Jesus together. And I know for me, every time I gather with my life group, you know, I feel the love of God through the guys that I meet with, and it enables me to love others better. Last but certainly not least, we can rely on the Holy Spirit. When we choose to dedicate our lives to God by following Jesus, God fills us with his Holy Spirit, who gives us the supernatural power to know God's truth and live it out. One of my favorite prayers is just to ask the Holy Spirit to help me love in ways that I cannot. And it's a prayer that he's answered time and time again. So I think if we make time to do these things, we'll find ourselves with the power and desire to walk in true agape love. And here's the other amazing thing. The more connected we are to God's agape love, the more he will start to transform our natural loves too. You see, agape love isn't necessarily meant to replace the love of family, friends, or a spouse. God created those loves as part of our humanity. Agape love infuses the natural loves with patience, kindness, selflessness, and forgiveness, and redeems them into instruments that God can use for his divine love and purpose. So let's lean in to God's love so we can all walk in his love together and prove that we are true followers of Jesus, who is the greatest love of all. Well, uh, in a minute we're going to sing a song that is just such a beautiful reminder of God's love for us. You know, worship is another way that we can be connected to God's love. Uh, but before we do that, you know, I would just love to spend some time praying for all of us. You know, the, the, the truth is, each one of us, including myself, have times where we let ourselves become distracted by the things of this world to the point where we've been blocked out by the truth. We've blocked out the truth of God's love for us. So I'd like to pray for those of us who have heard the words of John today and want to reconnect to God, to love himself so that we can walk in his love. There may be some of you who are tuning in who have never fully experienced the love of God. And you may be wondering, how do I even begin to know love himself? Well, the incredible news is, is that you can receive God's love and forgiveness today by accepting Jesus and what he did for you and his sacrifice for your sins. So if that's you, I'd like to start by praying for you, by giving you some words that you can pray to God silently, um, where you can receive his love and forgiveness today. The words themselves aren't magical. You can put them in your own world words, but I'd love to engage in that prayer with you together. So let's pray. God, for the people listening who are eager to know your love for the first time, I just ask that you hear these words from our hearts. That's you. Pray with me. You say, God, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And I believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. And now I commit my life to following him. We'll say amen to that prayer. And God, we all fall short of your love. We 
admit that we have let the distractions of this world prevent us from filling ourselves with your, the light of your love. And that has hampered our ability to truly love others like Jesus loved us. So God, I just pray for forgiveness for all of us for that. But God, I'm so thankful for your love and your Holy Spirit that you give us redemption and forgiveness so that we can come back and walk in your love. So God, I just ask that through your Holy Spirit, through your supernatural power, that we can be connected to you. That you can fill us with your love, that we can receive it, and that we can live it out to the world around us that needs it so badly. God, thank you for what you did through Jesus, the ultimate love for us. And it's in his mighty name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.